By staying home, you can not only protect your health and that of those around you, but ensure that our healthcare professionals and our healthcare systems can focus on those who need their help. Hello and welcome to Corona Movie Club, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Um, so we have a schedule of movies and we're all going to watch them independently in our own socially isolated homes and then three times a week we're going to get together over the internet and talk about them just like your mom's old book club used to do. Um, except now there's nothing old about it because it's all over the internet and we're all social isolating so that we don't help spread the coronavirus around the universe. Um, so we have people from all over North America who are participating and there's going to be different people on each call from the uh, core group. And so every episode, I'm going to come in and introduce the film that we're going to be watching, as well as the names of the people that are going to be on that week's call or that episode's call, because we're going to be doing this three times a week. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy. Let's go to the movies. It's something to do. Today on Corona Movie Club, we're talking about the 1986 comedy She's Got a Habit, which was Spike Lee's big launching pad. Um, he wrote and directed it. Uh, he also stars in it. Well, not stars. He has a supporting role in it, but he's very memorable. Um, he also like edited it and produced it. It was one of those one-man show kind of deals. Um, it's been since adapted into a Netflix TV series that's pretty good. Anthony Ramos plays the uh, Spike Lee role, and I love him in anything. Um, yeah, so check it out. It's a pretty, uh, big landmark film, um, in terms of, like, representation of, um, not just, like, a strong black female lead, but also just, um, she's polyamorous, she's really self-assured, she is really sex positive. There's a lot of things happening in this movie portrayal-wise that, um, are really interesting, as well as, um, Spike Lee specifically talks about this film as there is one major thing in his film career that he would go back and change and there is an event that happens in Act 3 of this film that is that thing. Uh, so we get into that a little bit on the episode and it's an interesting conversation to have, I think. Um, one of the people on this call is uh, my friend Lisa McEwen. She has her own podcast um, about... Uh, looking at, at pop culture through a feminist lens, and it is named She's Gotta Have It. So she's a really interesting perspective to have on this call. So I hope you enjoy. Who wants to talk about She's Gotta Have It? I, I feel that we should talk, start with Lisa. Um, <laughs> did I suggest it? I don't even remember. I don't know if you suggested I think other people did as well. Um, mm -hmm. Netflix has it because it oh, there's a TV series. It's actually not bad. I've only seen the first couple episodes, but I like it. I like Anthony Ramos a lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but it would have been on the list either way, but you should talk about it because it's a Lisa ish movie and you have a podcast named after it. And uh, <laughs> I just feel that no you're pressure. the appropriate person to speak first. <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, I actually have not, I still haven't seen the TV show, but it's on my list. Um, right now I think I might be deep diving back into Grey's Anatomy for a while, uh, just for, just to kind of get through more of this pandemic situation um well, with that that's a fun diverting show yes uh and uh i do have a podcast named after the movie she's gotta have it it's called she's gotta have an exclamation mark to distinguish it uh because we are uh, very obviously not attempting to be cool 
So, um, but I, I had not seen the movie when we started the podcast. My co-host really loved that movie when she saw it back in the 80s um, because uh, she is a lady who spent uh, the majority of her life being polyamorous and also just really, when she saw that movie, really felt struck by uh, the way that Spike Lee uh, was managing to convey a story about a woman in a very different way um, from what we just normally see, right? Like she's not, she's not playing um, sort of like somebody's girlfriend or love interest in the same way that you usually see it. And um, she, on and off throughout our friendship, I've known Lisa for, my co-host is also named Lisa, it's confusing. Um, <laughs> I've known her for about eight years now. And on and off, she's talked about this movie and more and more as we were uh, thinking about doing the podcast, which is part of the reason it's the namesake. Uh, and we did an episode recently in which we had uh, my friend Leah Swede on to talk about it, uh, who I think attended attended a, uh, a university in Atlanta that was like the same university or a sister university to the one that Spike Lee attended and like was like a big part of like the black community down there uh and we we talked about um yeah just the way it portrays um uh like a woman a woman's desire a black woman and just like all of the different um interesting things about that uh and the way that it is like centered around her and the way that she is very unapologetic about what she wants um, okay. So my one comment is about the last sentence. Mm -hmm. it, okay. If she, it's not that she's not unapologetic about what she wants. I, I'm not sure. And maybe I missed it or something. And maybe this was sort of baked into the idea of like the men demanding or having expectations of her that were not reasonable, mm -hmm. but to me, if, you, if this is how you want to conduct your relationships, I think it's really important to be really upfront about that and like specifically choose people who are also okay and or interested in living like that. Um, and what I felt, and I, and I wasn't sure whether th this was a real tension or like, were they sort of read in on it, but the idea was that like no man would accept her terms and therefore her only options were men who would not accept her terms? Or did she kind of pick the people she wanted and want them to just be, expect them to just be okay with it because she's, I was kind of, you know, I, I felt a little bit of that, a little bit of like, well, she, the, the film, not so much her as a character, but the film almost had like a, an, an, there's something about Mary kind of deal with her where she's amazing and like, she's not what these men want, but they keep not turning away from her for some reason. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like a weird, I don't, I didn't quite understand. I, I like part of it to me is just like, okay, I, I completely understand if that's your deal, but you have to find people who's that's also their deal. Isn't that the whole. But that's the end of the movie, right? she got rid of all of them well she now, no, she got rid of she got rid of two of them so that she could because she thought she had to pick the one she liked the most no but I because think, culture told her she had to pick one but yeah, then but in I, the end she's alone 
which I don't think that's what she wants either. She's not alone. Like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm free and everything, but she's not actually living what she's not doing what she wants in the end, which is sleeping with a whole bunch of men because she's at the end sleeping with nobody. Well, no, she's, she stopped sleeping with those three and there's a future now of possibly other relationships. Yeah, she certainly says at the end yeah. that I'm like, I'm back to sleeping with as many people as I want. We just right. don't need them because this isn't that the movie isn't the story about those later people. Sure, sure. But it's I don't know, just the idea of the idea of the unapologetic thing is, is interesting to me because it did it did feel like she specifically picked at least the main one, at least Jamie was someone who like specifically did not want what she wanted. I don't think she picked him because of that though. I do think think so. No, I think she, I think you're right that like she didn't take it as her responsibility to deal with whether or not he really wanted that. She was like, here's what I want. Here are my terms. You can be in this or not. And he kept choosing to be in it thinking that he could manipulate her into doing what he wanted. She, she for sure was aware what she was doing was not what he wanted, but she never tried to manipulate him. She was always just very like direct about it. Here's my deal. Here's what I'm doing. Here's who else I'm dating. If you like it, great. If you don't, you can fuck off. But like, if you keep telling, if you keep coming back, I'm going to assume that you're consenting to these terms. That's what I mean by unapologetic, right? Sure, sure. Because I think that like often, like, I mean, that's like, it is a thing in, in, I mean, relationships in general, I think, not just polyamory, that, like, if you're sort of aware that the person is paying a price of admission that they don't really want to pay, but they're in a relationship with you anyway, like, how much is it your responsibility to tell them to break up with them, and how much is it their responsibility to decide that that's terms that they don't actually want? That's, like, an open question, I think, for Mm -hmm. a lot of relationships. I don't think there's, like, a right answer there. Well, but then shouldn't she get mad at him when he started dating someone else? Isn't that a plot point in this movie? Did I miss something? There's a little jealousy there, I think. Um, but okay. I don't know. I think she's still open to him dating her. I don't know. They have a, but, an actual conversation where he says, you have no right to be upset. And she's like, yeah, but I am anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Literally, that's like lines in the movie. But she's, being, <laughs> she's being honest with herself, I think, that she is a little jealous. Uh, okay, sure. Whatever. Anyone else? <laughs> doesn't mean that uh, she's perfect in her you know um like she can't like she's not perfect in her in her relationships and her own emotions towards her partners i mean i think it's just a human reaction yeah mm-hmm. yeah and her and she doesn't say break up with that dancer she just makes fun of him for dating that dancer <laughs> right like <it's> not- <laughs> Unlike, unlike the boys who are constantly being like, get rid of that guy, just be with me. She never, she doesn't say that when he starts dating someone else. She's a little jealous, but. I mean, and I think she just handles it in a way she's like, yeah, no, I get that this is a double standard, but I'm feeling what I'm feeling. (laughs) Which happens all the time in non-monogamy. I mean, like, just from all the non-monogamous people I know, like, that is the thing that happens. How you deal with it is, you know matters but yeah because then there's the question of is your partner being the same polyamorous as you are are you doing it because you can love more people or be open to more people or are they doing it because they're missing something from you that they're getting from someone else like there's a lot of those questions that i like they didn't really touch on but 
I think that's um, in polyamory. Well, and how much of that, that, that's true. Like the, the version of polyamory that I've witnessed and been really like impressed by, like not, you know, like there's like a a particular community that does it in a way that I think is like a really beautiful, lovely thing that I just, it wouldn't work for me, but like, it's beautiful that they make it work is not the same way that a lot of other people I know who call themselves polyamorous. It's not the same thing. (laughs) Um, A lot of other people I know who call themselves polyamorous are just dating around, um, and the it's different, and I and I was wondering that this was made in I believe 1986. How much of that sort of language and the and the like sort of methodology of it as a like valid lifestyle choice has evolved in the years since? And so some of our like language around it and our ideas of what that looks like is like what was that in 1986? It, was it comparable? Um, I don't know. And like how much about it did Spike Lee actually know? (laughs) Like those are always my questions when it comes to movies that are like not super old, but like old enough. Yeah, that's part of what was so remarkable about it for Lisa Wagner is seeing an example of this from the 80s. Of, of of a life that she decided to live that then she happened to see this movie and she was like, wait a minute, this is like me. (laughs) And she'd never seen that anywhere else. So, and yeah, now it's much more, it's much more ubiquitous. So would she say that this movie like popularized the concept or like made it? No, I think it just made her feel seen because she's the sort of person who's like, here's what I want. And then she sort of, she did also have three different people who were like, she sort of compiled to be a balance because (laughs) they were, they were not balances themselves, but they together created a balance for her in her life. Um, You can listen to our episode to hear more about this, but um, yeah, I mean, I do think that the male characters in this movie are very funny. Like, I think it's, like, they are kind of, like... Stereotypes. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old was Spike Lee in this? When he made I this? I know, he looked very he, young. He was, like, very young. <laughs> I think I mean, he was born in the 50s. No, I'm going to Google it. Yeah. Wait, Google. I have his IMDb page open oh. here, so let's see. Um, oh, no, don't tell me what you do. <laughs> He's 63 right now, so he would have been... Would have been like I have to do math something. now. Yeah, he would have been in his early 30s. 29, yeah? Yeah. 29, 30. He looks younger than that in the movie. Yes. <laughs> he definitely plays younger than that. Yeah. But as he pointed out, he's a very small man. Yeah. So <laughs> I, Ooh, I like a little self awareness. Of those three, of those three guys, that's the guy that I would date. The guy that he's. <laughs> oh, hands down, yeah, For he's sure. Anthony Ramos in the in the TV show. It's like <laughs> far and away, yeah, he's the best one. Um, although something I did read about this film that I thought was really interesting is that, like, of his whole filmography, uh, Spike Lee's one major regret is the rape scene in this movie. He wouldn't yeah. do it now, yeah. which is... So here's my question, though. It's in there, right? And, like, the, the this is the thing about movies, is that, like, once they're wrapped, they're wrapped and they're done. And theoretically, George Lucas, they're supposed to stay. <laughs> That's the... You made the movie. So knowing that you know sort of compare it to we did we did close encounters a few a few weeks ago and famously spielberg has said that you know since having a family of his own he realized that you know he would not have spoiler alert him leave his family in the end 
does the, the a filmmaker's remorse in him saying it would be a better movie if I wouldn't do it now, now that I'm like more informed, does that make, when you're watching the movie, can you sort of mentally delete that scene? Because it is a better movie without it. And it, it makes it more complicated and more interesting without it. So. I, I think the one thing that for, for me, I was, it bothered me a little bit until she uh, said that it was, a semi-raper she said something like that mm -hmm. and when she said that i was like okay so they're they're actually calling it what it is maybe she said and, it and like a she joke felt it. yeah it was well, like very light it it hey, laura you're muted oh it, it was what it just felt what um she she felt that it was but i i don't know it was it was very a weird moment i'm like still why are you going back to him I think it's over by like when that happens. So can I but, interject here? Yeah, because yeah, 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 please. I'm that's done. a that's a question. I mean, like, uh, like full disclosure, I've never been raped. But my understanding is that like when somebody does that, it's very compelling to go back to the person because you want to like make it right or you want to like figure it out or somehow like establishing a relationship with them. Like, will kind of like help ease your anxiety about what happened. Mm -hmm. Like that's part part of the reason. Like it just sort of. Uh, like it creates a like a, a terrible relationship rupture, and I think that it doesn't necessarily mean that you just like are like oh I didn't ever want to see you again. Sometimes it's like yeah that there's like some sort of attempt at repair to to sort of deal with the fact that that happened, and then you sometimes realize that doesn't work. Is right that in, real, in, in sort of real that, life psycho like our understanding of the psychology around that from like a modern perspective, that's absolutely right, but. Yeah. Spike Lee has specifically said the reason he would not put that in now oh. is because he felt he made light of it and mm. it was, it was oh. too, he just threw it in there. And oh. if you go back and watch the scene, like her, when she calls it rape, she says it with a light tone, almost like laughingly. And like, it's not coming from Spike Lee having this insight about, you know, what rape victims do. It's, right. it's coming from a place of like, this is a thing that happened. I'm going to like, poke fun almost at the fact that you got so intense for a second there. Mm. It's like a very weird, but like my question is as from a, from a film analysis point of view, if a filmmaker acknowledges that something, he wouldn't do something now, can you, when you're evaluating the film, give it that extra credit of evaluating it without that? No. No. I, th I think if I, mean, I, th I think if we're talking about it now and he said that we can definitely consider all of that. Um, like, but if he didn't say anything, um, then we can definitely criticize that as well. Like, we can criticize it. I, I mean, we could still criticize it either way, but because he he talked about it as well, is that we can um, empathize with his growth or like understand his growth um, since he made the movie. I mean, it can, uh, I guess it clarifies what the perspective is when that was put in, in that it didn't hit, it probably didn't hit for him, like the same way it would for someone that's experienced that, like that it was just sort of provides, I, I mean, it doesn't, you can't erase it, but it's just like, Okay, that sort of clarifies what you were trying to do and what you misunderstood at the time. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think also yeah. just just her saying that, it, like saying the word rape, I think is very important. 
Um, because if it wasn't said, then it would, I would really be like against that scene because then we didn't call it what it was mm -hmm. at all. Um, so even what? then he, there was like, that was part of the movie that they did use the word rape and, and it's 80, 86. What I ended up saying uh, on the podcast episode was that, um, I mean, the other thing is, is that like some people experience like are, or are raped, but don't experience it as like a trauma. And so like, and like that can sometimes happen. And my generous reading of this is like, that's how she kind of experienced it. Or like, that's how it sort of like got absorbed into her like narrative about herself. Like it's rape but I'm also not traumatized by it, but it also like changed my view of you. Like, and that like, that's a real kind of experience that people relate to, but it, it is sort of like, it still kind of didn't sit right with me because I think that that's not most people's experience. Mm -hmm. But there was a woman that like Trump raped in that department store who was like a writer or a journalist, like back in the eighties. I don't know if you guys remember this of many mm -hmm. different Trump uh, accuse, <laughs> accusations, but like, uh, she was on the Savage Love cast and Dan was calling it rape. And she was like, I wasn't raped though. Like I wasn't traumatized by it. And I remember mm -hmm. at the time thinking like, eh, like you, it can be both. It can be both. Like he had sex with you without your consent, but she felt uncomfortable calling it rape because it hadn't like, she didn't want to think of herself as a victim or, or to like associate herself with a particular kind of, traumatic experience because that's, that wasn't her experience. Yeah, you see that a lot with statutory rape stories, right? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know how to do any segues in this movie. <laughs> this movie. Can I, um, I, let's I, talk about I, the dance scene. <laughs> uh, sorry, go ahead. My signal, my signal dropped and I fell out of the call for a minute there, but can I say one thing about whether, how I think we should read the movie in view of the yeah cool yes. <laughs> uh, what i would say is that we still have to that i think in having a conversation about it it's important to know and to mention and to talk about what his subsequent statements have been but i still think we have to consider the object as as an object um that exists in the world so um and also it seemed to me in watching it that the rape was why she got together with him or like why she so that like it, there's definitely an element of that in the story and so i can't imagine how to talk about the movie without talking about it right yeah also, certainly in the description of the plot on wikipedia it says that that encounter is what spurs her it's like calling her bluff or something like it's like what spurs her on to which, but yes. break up with <laughs> the other guy it's like it's a yeah it's certainly in terms of like the order of events, the thing that immediately precipitates it. Mm -hmm. um, and character wise, like he's always been sort of the, maybe the hero boyfriend that we want her to end up with. And then this happens and it's like, this is, this is like, no, this guy ended up being maybe the worst one. Um, so I don't know if that's also a point, like the point to make about just the relationships and how we consider people and even though he felt I mean he felt bad about it but I mean it still happened yeah I mean he was the one who was the most different from the 
others in terms of his relationship with her, right? Like she, he was always the one, like we knew from the very beginning that if she was going to end up with one person, she would choose him. He was the one like that she would use love language around him, whereas the other two were just sort of also there. But then he was also the one who had the biggest problem with the sleeping with multiple people thing. Cause the other two didn't want her to break up with them. So they were like willing to quote unquote put up with it. Whereas he, and part of that I'm sure came from being in the, the one who was in the position of, Oh, well, if we can force her to stop seeing multiple people, I'm going to be the one who reaps the benefit. Whereas the other two were in a position of, if, if we like stop, if we tell her that we like, can't do this anymore, they aren't, we're going to end up alone. Whereas Jamie believed that he could get her somehow to only see him. So I think, yeah, he was just in a, yeah. You can say that sort of thing on the, um, sorry, someone's tell, telling me things in the chat. You can just say it cause I can't read it and say things at once. Um, anyway, I don't know, whatever. Jamie was a, a slightly different. I feel like the other two, though they differentiated them in personality, they served very similar functions in the story and then Jamie was the one who the, the emotional investment was there and you're just in a different position than the other two storytelling wise. I don't know. Matt, what did you think? You haven't spoken yet. <laughs> oh, I've just been more interested in listening to what everyone's had to say. <laughs> Cause I, I don't know what I think about this movie. I think I like this movie overall. I believe um, the whole authorship question about whether things can be revoked after the fact, I don't think so because i like i'm of the belief like the anti-george lucas belief that once you've made something then it's out of your hands and it's in the world and it is what it is and i think what it is is like what spike lee said how it was sort of a lapse in judgment on his part because i think the one thing that i like about that scene is when she says i want you to make love with me he's like you don't want me to make love to you you want me to fuck you and i think that scene if it ended just with that line without going as far as it did it would have been a lot more effective to hit home the point I think he was trying to make, but he instead kind of made the choice to open up a door to a whole realm of conversation that an entire movie should probably be focused on. And it wasn't the focus really in any uh, way I felt. So yeah, like I think we just have to kind of accept that it was it was a choice that was made and like we can, I guess, appreciate him as an artist for admitting to the flaw, but like when you assess the work, it just, it's like, it's there, it's set in stone as a piece of what it is. Uh, what else did I think? I don't know, like overall it was, it, it left me thinking a lot about all the characters and about all the choices and about just, everything i think a big component of it is the whole idea of just everyone thinking that they can change one another and then the inevitability of the fact that that's not possible which again goes to that one line that i really like like make love to me you don't want that you want this instead like mm -hmm. I, for me i think that's like where the heart of the idea of the movie is and in some ways it was effective in other ways not so much and i can't wrap my head around the choice to have one sequence in color except for maybe the superficial wizard of oz connection but i would hope that it was more intellectual than that he really really likes musicals apparently 
<laughs> and oh, that one too. color I... scene was like somehow some homage to like uh, some other kind of like trope in the eighties. That's all I learned when we and did. Like, do we know what was it shot in black and white? Just because it was his first feature, and that was more cost effective. No, it was actually more expensive. It really? Was? Yeah, not by sense. a lot. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I think it's beautifully shot in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the. I I really like this movie as a whole. I think it's a really solid movie. Oh um, yeah. Uh, and beautifully shot. And I I really like the the when it went into color. I was like, oh okay, where's their boss? Cool, cool. And then it's like we don't need this scene. Um, but. Uh, yeah. But again, it's sort of like, again, showing that this is the guy that's really, like, really going far, far beyond the other two about showing his boyfriendy one. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know. I, I didn't mind the color. I, I loved it. It's, I think it's a nice little touch. I don't know. He had like these, uh, just, these, different, these different artistic things that he such did. A like drastic move that I feel like it needs to be <laughs> fully justified. Like in Wizard of Oz, that's the whole point that everything has gone from black and white into color and just other movies when there's something that's that like aesthetically drastic i can usually connect the dots as to the purpose whereas this i couldn't and maybe i'm not smart enough which is a definite possibility but even just emotionally watching it i was like i it actually just bothered me because i was so accustomed to how nice the black and white was and how i was like stitched into that reality and then it took that away from me it did set up it, the, it did set up his relationship with the dancer because he did say i know the dancer True. that's um but if that, black and white if that same scene would have accomplished the same yes. thing yeah True. but it's so much prettier to see them dance in color maybe that was maybe it's as simple as that well and it's also it's a, it's a moment of real extravagance as a gift and i think oh, true. i think color is, a, is somewhat extravagant as well i think that there's something about the like mm -hmm. the costliness of it um not that, not that it's literally costly but that it it feels Precious. extra that he went the extra went the extra mile yeah he put mm -hmm. a paintbrush onto the film for us for <laughs> I also liked the whole, I don't know what the word is, the um, the whole style of how everyone is just talking very matter of fact, factually, like sort of striking this odd balance between kind of being a documentary, but kind of not. And somehow I think it's done, it's handled well enough in a way that it, like, I don't question it, whereas normally I feel like that's something that would probably bother me a lot. I but there was just something about aren't professional actors. I know that was, yeah, that was the thing that yeah. I think I really liked is yeah. and we were even discussing a couple movies ago, like having non-actors in a film. And I feel like this is a case where it worked mm. to their benefit because like they were just, they were people who had really good acting intuition. And then there was just a really nice spirit to just when they were just speaking directly to the camera, like the first speech uh, that, oh, what's your name? main character starts Nola? with an N. Yes. Nola. Nola. The first Nola speech Darling. that Nola gives, like, I love that when she says, like, if, um, I don't know if this is going to help anyone else, but if it does, that's fine. I don't like the word freak. Just that whole monologue was just so captivating and, like, such a great way to start the film. And you can tell that 
well, I don't know this for a fact. I'm assuming she's not a professional actor, but she has like this really beautiful raw realism to her and like just something really captivating that I felt all of them had. And I really loved at the end, just when you're seeing like all the outtakes or all of them just like saying their name with a clapboard and seeing that who you see in the film, even though it's under a different name, is more or less a shade of who they are in real life, which was quite nice. So, yeah, so she I has a cameo that. in the TV series, the woman who played Nola Darling. But also women speaking directly, especially women, women speaking directly into a camera is very, very rare. Jill Soloway talks about this all the time. Mm. Yeah. The one thing, well, I guess probably mm. it had an influence later on, but it reminded me of like the first episode of Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you yeah. have sort of... <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a very, like, like very connection maybe i'm sure like it definitely had its in i think like the the especially in the 80s it's like hi everyone have you listened to a woman before have you sat in front of a woman and listened to them here here we go (laughs) yeah well and that was very much laura like what Sex and the City was doing obviously it was doing it in a very different way in a different very different realm but like yeah what was so revolutionary about that show at the time was the idea of like women um there's sorry two whoa Susan there's two Susans on my screen only one can be victorious <laughs> oh god <laughs> you're such a bloody battle um but the the idea of like um, not just women talking directly to the camera, which was a thing that eventually Sex and the City let go of, but mm. the idea of women speaking so frankly about their own sex and romantic lives, which is a thing that for ever um, had only ever been spoken about by men, mm. um, like specifically like the lives of women. That particular realm of the lives of women had always been articulated by men, and so I, it is definitely the same spirit. Um, that idea of the direct address, though obviously very different realms. Mm -hmm. Talking about something that's, I guess, normally of the time was considered a little taboo. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. My internet dropped, so I don't know how we started this conversation, but are we talking about the fact that it's sort of shot like a documentary? Yeah. A little bit. We're talking about the direct address. Yeah. So is that direct address pseudo document is that is that is that a genre like it's not a mockumentary it's not making fun of the form or like it's taking itself the subject very seriously but that sort of framing so it's called mockumentary even because it's not not in like a mocking sense but in like a A documentary yeah 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 Yeah. um because it is the same word even when it's serious i think most of the time right matt film school Okay. Well, I thought I'd ask you so that I, in case I was talking out of my bum, but I'm just going to pretend I'm definitely right. (laughs) (laughs) The only other movie I can think of that has a similar structure that's like kind of documentary, but is still very overtly a fiction film is The Laramie Project. If anyone's seen the movie of The Laramie Project. The Laramie Project's not fiction. Hmm? Laramie Project's not fiction. It's not fiction, except it's not like a real life documentary because they're filming it like they're re like they're restaging the spoken words that were done through the interviews so like they take in the play 
that's like a documentary play and then they've turned it into an actual like fictional narrative film so like they have actors re like recreating actual people and re like reading actual words that were spoken in the interviews and so it's the same format where like it's direct address straight into the camera and then the movie's not trying to pose itself off as a real documentary but it still has the interview elements to it anyway, yeah that's the only other movie i can think that is a similar form that's not trying to pass itself off as a documentary to someone watching who wouldn't know otherwise whether it was like actually recorded in the moment or not yeah i guess you see it mostly in television it's very popular form in television wasn't there interview with a vampire did that oh did they <laughs> i don't know like very again <laughs> so like, it's just called yeah. interview with the vampire, vampire. But i don't think there are interviews in it. i don't know <laughs> There are, there totally are interviews in it. There, there are, I don't know if they're too, I don't know if they're to the camera like that, but you get voiceover from the novel of text from the novel that's direct address. Yeah. And um, one thing that I found interesting about the format is I was just, so I was describing the movie to my roommate and I said, it's, I was surprised at how it got, it was, had the point of view of a woman, it was the, a woman's point of view. And then I realized that it's not exclusively a woman's point of view because <laughs> all the boys get the direct address too. So it has the effect of sort of like framing her perspective as not the one true perspective. That's true. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the rape scene weakens the movie, because mm -hmm. I think that if the, uh, the men and specifically Jamie's like the one who's the likeliest to have this, like if they had a, sort of stronger case for themselves, it would be a more complicated film. Um, mm. But as it currently is, it's kind of a little bit like, no, she's, she's right. Like everybody back the fuck off. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just more complicated when there aren't like so-and-so's in the right and look at all, all the ways in which people are not accepting of her. It's more interesting when you have that tension um, and the movie makes a few key mistakes along the way. Like Greer is so ridiculous. Like if they just made him a little less ridiculous, you know, like there, there would be, if they were more human and more compelling, there was more room for their perspective to be not so wrong. The way he takes off his clothes oh, and yeah. flares yeah. them. Yeah. And Hilarious. it's like a performance. That oh, is so great. Took a lot of time to I wanted her to fall asleep. Clothes. I wanted her to fall asleep. I had that thought too. I just, I just wanted her to fall asleep. <laughs> I mean, Marie, Marie Kondo would be proud. <laughs> Very neatly folded. It's so like anti-sexual for me. Like it's yeah. so, you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's so precious. Like, it's not like. But kind of also, like, Lisa, like realistically. It's one of Greer is one of those kind of great characters where like he's presented as this like guy with all this sex appeal who like universally women would love him and I don't know a soul who would go for <laughs> Greer like that is the least sexy man ever <laughs> not aesthetically but just like his general behavior is like just a hard no from me yeah. and every woman I know <laughs> I, I would take a ride in his Jaguar. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, just a hard no. Uh. <coughs> Although, actually, Laura, to go back to your Sex in the City thing, one thing I did I did find compelling and and especially startling, knowing this was written by a man, was the the 
little montage of terrible men um, yeah that i think oh, the yeah. credits call them like the dog parade or something there's like they're <laughs> all called dog number something yeah um because that, that, that they was, do that in sex in the city yeah but, that was precisely yeah. like the episode one because you had like the montage of all like the uneligible bachelor or the toxic was it the toxic yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Sex and the City man. stole from this movie. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, yes. Blatantly, <laughs> okay. for sure. Which, like, I mean, you yeah. could write some essays about that. But that that scene where they just like were listing them. Oh man, that yeah, was that's... this role. That was traumatic stuff. <laughs> like the one that uh, does the resume. He says his whole resume. I have this. I have, this is my this is my education. This is my money. This is my and he wasn't, he was like $40,000 after tax. <laughs> yeah. Like, it wasn't like awesome. I don't know, it's sort of a weird, I don't know. Could be like, great. But do you like 80s? food? Inflation? Oh, maybe in the 80s, sure, sure. Inflation, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, uh, I don't know. It was, uh, yeah, that was brutal. The, the one, the guy d- describing the, the prime, USDA prime, I think I'll have nightmares about that. Forever. Oh God! Oh, I'm sorry. Now, yeah, you reminded me. Yep, upsetting stuff. Sorry, I brought it back <laughs> up, but I just want you to share in my pain. If I have to have the pain, you have to have the pain, Laura Hubbard. That's how it works. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. <laughs> that's how Zoom works. Cool. That is that's the essence of Zoom. Does anybody have anything else to say about this? Movie? Um, I think that the quote, of- the quote at the beginning. I think the first part of the quote's really great, but then. The second part, I'm like, it's kind of weird. I, I don't know if you even remember it after you hear it um, or read Something it. Something about a ship. Um, yeah, like, like it's about a, a man who like sees a ship. He wants, he just wants to be on it, and either it comes to shore or it goes away. And he loves it until it, uh, time passes, and and then he forgets about it. But then it goes on to talk about what women think, but it's not about what they. It's not how about how they feel or think about love. It's about what they remember. <laughs> um, and it just, it's just like a completely different uh, comparison. Like it's talking about the guy's dreams and then the woman's remembering, like her mind. Um, and then there's like two sentences that I'm not sure refer to either the women or the men or both of them. And so it was a, a little, a little like, bit of a confusing it? quote. Who, who was it? Who, who said the quote? Uh, oh, I forgot who, who the, what the quote is. I feel like it's somebody really famous. Zora Neale Hurston, I think. Thank you. Yes. That sounds right. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I just wasn't, I wasn't familiar with this quote, like if there's more context to it, but um, it was a little awkward. It's, I just said it was just a little bit of an awkward quote, but the first part of it made sense. Like it was a good um, summary of what this film is going to be about. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't about the men looking at the boat. It's actually about her. Uh, I would, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. I guess your last comments are a little like the music. Uh, yes, that yeah. was going to be the other thing. That's by his father. Oh, yeah. oh. really? By his father, yeah. Yeah, this was a, a Lee family project. Yeah. yeah. And Joao Lee plays like his, like, his, Nola's father, roommate, right? roommate, I think. Her, her? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh. the sister. Oh. Sister plays her friend. Oh. Yeah. And, the fa- and his father plays Nola's father. Oh, cool. I believe. Yeah. I believe yeah. they're the same um we didn't really talk about the friend i don't know i didn't think she fit in i thought she was kind of thrown in there i didn't quite i I think it was interesting that after the three 
after she lost the three relationships or they were sort of like questioning being with her um that she went back to her friend that she needed she always she was it, I kind of think it's a bad thing that she only went back to her friend after all of her other relationships were gone. Mm, classic. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seemed like that sort of friend that like jumps from person to person, but then they're like, oh, there's a break. What do I do? <laughs> like, like, hello, friend I haven't talked to. And... Yep. Yeah. But then yep. I like that she didn't help, that she couldn't really help. She's like, I, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my bass solo. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I think it's a solid film that really, like, it works today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Clearly, clearly influenced a lot of future things and Mm -hmm. (laughs) is what it accomplished. Yeah. I feel like it's very thought-provoking and merits multiple viewings because it left me with lots of questions but like in the good way not in the annoying way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just aesthetically and directorially i like a lot of choices like the black and white not necessarily going to color because that took away all the magic for me of like whatever the movie was building towards but eh. it's it pretty it, though it was pretty it was very pretty <laughs> okay so if no one else has anything they absolutely have to add, I think we'll call it there. Going once, going twice. Okay. It's over. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, so over. All right. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Kelly. Bye. 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 Bye.